Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. begin today by handing out some verses. Tom, if you would, look up Leviticus chapter 11. You're going to read verses 44 and 45 eventually. Leon, if you would, Leviticus 19 verse 2. Steve, if you would, Leviticus chapter 20 verse 7. The rest of us are all going to turn to 1 Peter, the very first chapter.
Last week, we began talking about being Christian. The emphasis on that phrase is in the being. I have had a couple of people ask me if I was purposefully placing the emphasis on the word be, as in be the Christian, And the answer is yes, because I think the Bible places an appropriate emphasis on not only talking Christianity, but also doing Christianity. So yes, there is an appropriate emphasis on how we should be. The person who asked me that asked it in the context of saying, aren't you afraid that someone will think that you're being legalistic? as you're talking about how to behave. And my answer was, no, I am not a legalist. I am a biblicist. And the Bible does say that we are supposed to be certain ways. That idea reaches all the way back to the three verses that we're going to read out of the Levitical law. But then that very idea is picked up by Peter and transported into the New Testament. And what I'm hoping to demonstrate is that Christianity is more than simply giving mental assent to a series of theological propositions, as important as those propositions may be. You know that I love doctrine, obviously, for 19 years. If you've spent any time at all listening to the teaching that comes out of GCA here, it is heavily doctrinal. I'm very into the proper sound teaching of Christianity. But it is not enough for you to simply adhere to and agree with the doctrine of Christianity It is also necessary that you do the things that you give assent to. And that is what I'm trying to show here is that throughout the entirety of the Bible beginning to end, what you're going to see is this consistent pattern of here's the truth. Here's what God is like. Also react to it. There's been theological discussions through the years about what the chief characteristic of God is, what his primary attribute is. Do you know what I mean when I say primary attribute? It means the particular attribute through which all the other characteristics or attributes of a person have to flow. In God's case, far too often people, especially within the modern church, seem to think that God's primary attribute is love. But then in order to test whether that is his primary attribute, all you have to do is use love as the qualifier for the other activities and qualities of God that you know of. For instance, it is fine to speak of God's loving grace or his loving kindness, his loving mercy. He is loving in the way that he is long-suffering. But you can't really talk about God's loving wrath. You can't talk about God's loving hatred and loving judgment and damnation of certain people, that just becomes too self-contradictory at some point. And so theologians through the years 
have argued, and this is what I agree with, and actually this idea was really driven home to me by reading the writings of A.W. Pink, that the primary attribute of God, far from being love, is holiness. And if you use that as his primary attribute, you can speak of every other attribute of God correctly. We can talk about his holy love and his holy grace and his holy kindness, his holy long-suffering. We can talk about his holy wrath, his holy judgment. It is his holiness that drives him to do the things that he does. He is primarily holy. His spirit, then, would be a spirit of holiness, which is why he is referred to as the Holy Spirit, the Hagian Numa. There's no question about what it means in the Greek. It means the Spirit of God that is primarily holy. So let's draw a quick comparison. There's you, and you by nature, the biblical anthropology describes you as nothing but sinful and depraved and rebellious and naturally an enemy of God. And then God, out of incredible kindness and grace, places his spirit inside you in order to conform you, in order to change you, in order to secure you, in order to draw you to himself. And that spirit itself has the primary attribute of being holy. The holy spirit takes up residence in wretched, depraved, sinful people. My point? It ought to show. There ought to be some kind of change, otherwise there is a phenomenal conflict going on inside every individual Christian because they are naturally depraved, egocentric, fleshly, wanting to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it, and then they are inhabited by the primarily holy spirit of God, and so that sets up a warfare, a battle. Paul says that there is the spirit of the flesh, there is the spirit of God, and the two are at enmity with each other. But guess which one's going to win? The one that is the spirit of the Almighty. Because he has all the power, and you're described as having no power, and Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So the spirit of God is not only holy, but it will overpower you, and therefore it will demonstrate itself. Or I should say more properly, I'll use the right pronoun, he will demonstrate himself in the way that he conforms you to the word of God, to the thinking of God, and to the behavior that God expects out of you. So now let's go back to the question of, is that biblical or is that legalistic? I argue that it's biblical because God himself says, I'm holy, now therefore you be holy. Notice the word be is right in there. Be like this. I'm like this, now be like this. That means behaviorally act like God. All right, so Tom over there has Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45 he's going to read for us. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. 
You shall not defile yourselves with any sworn thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Be holy, because I'm holy. I've redeemed you. And then he says, consecrate yourselves. That means separate yourselves. Don't be like you used to be back when you were in Egypt, when you were chasing after other gods, when you were living any way that you wanted to according to your own mind and your own flesh and your own ego. Don't be like that. Be like me. And what am I like? I'm holy. Therefore, you be holy. Now, if that were the only place that God said that, that would be adequate in order to instruct us that God identifies himself as a holy God and therefore expects his people to be holy after him. But then he says it again to the same group of people because we are hard-headed and because it's difficult for us to absorb things the first time we hear it. God comes back a second time in Leviticus 19.2, which Leon is going to read to us now. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Okay, so this is not just a passing fancy in God's part. He did not just say it accidentally. It was not a slip of the tongue. It is something that God is determined to say, be holy because I am holy. But then, just so that there's no vagary to it, so that there's no question about it, or would the word be vagueness about it, he says it yet again in the next chapter, Leviticus 20, verse 7, which Steve is going to read to us. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. So how often now have we heard God say, consecrate yourself and be holy? Now, he said that particularly to Israel, the people who he re had redeemed out of the land of Egypt. So it would be easy for us then to say, well, yes, but that was an Old Testament discussion. That was an Old Testament rule, an Old Testament code. God could say to those people, I have redeemed you. I've taken you out of your slavery. I've given you promises. I'm keeping my promises to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But that's still all Old Testament. Peter imports that into the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 1, and then he quotes it so that it is imported into New Testament Christian thinking. And here's what he says, starting at verse 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Do you know what that means? It means take a hold of your head. It's the same thing as Paul saying, I take every thought captive. When you were going into war... Back in Peter's day, before you went into the war, you would put on armor. You would gird yourself. You would prepare yourself for the battle you were going into. And you are going into a battle, the battle between the world and the Christian mind, the battle between your own innate sinfulness and God's call to holiness. And it is a battle because the flesh and the spirit are indeed at enmity with each other. But therefore, gird your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. 
fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, good. It's grace. It's all grace. Okay, so I'm going to fix my mind, which just means I'm going to think about grace. I'm going to concentrate on grace. I'm going to think about God's election. I'm going to give mental, intellectual assent to these biblical propositions, and that's really all there is to it. Peter continues on. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to your former lusts. In other words, you used to be away. Now you're supposed to be different. And don't be conformed by the things that used to draw your attention by your former lust, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your Behavior. I can't help that. That's behavior. <laughs> it's the word behavior. It's the word behavior behind the word obedient. Be obedient in your behavior. Why? Because you're to be like the Holy One who called you. So be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now we know where Peter got that thought, and you'll notice that he did not say, when God said that, he was speaking exclusively to Israel. Peter says, this is the God that we all serve. This is the God who has expected all of us and who does expect all of us on a daily basis, all of us who name the name of Christ. All of us who say that we are redeemed by grace, that we've been bought with a price, that we've been elected before the foundation of the world, we are to be holy. We are to conform our behavior because the one who called us is holy. Turn to 1 Thessalonians for a moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul, and I mean Paul Young here in the room with his nice haircut. I'm just jealous that he has hair. Paul very wisely chose to read John 15 this morning. And you will notice that in John 15, Jesus said, I give you a new command, that you love one another. Last week we talked about the commands. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And included in that is that you love one another. And that's why he was able to say, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, by your love. By the fact that you love each other. That is definitional to what it is to be a Christian. And I can't help it, that is behavior. But you will not and you cannot naturally love each other with that God type of love, that Jesus expected level of love, unless the Spirit of God takes up habitation in you and inspires you to love one another on a sacrificial level, you will only do that by the Spirit of God, which is a holy, sanctified spirit. So the holy, separate Spirit of God inspires you to live according to the commandments of the holy, righteous Lord who told you, love one another. And he commanded it. He didn't just suggest it. And he said it's definitional to who you are as a Christian. By this all men will know you're my disciples. 
by your love one for the other. Okay, so we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel in it even more. Paul is complimenting the Thessalonians for their walk, for their behavior, for the way that they are living out their Christianity, and then saying, but you don't get to rest on your laurels. Instead, you have to continue to excel even more because this Christian life is a constant growing experience, growing in the knowledge of God, growing in the peace, the recognition, the grace of God. And in that growing separating process that we Christians are called to, we are to continually excel in walking, behaving, demonstrating Christianity in our lives. I exhort you in the Lord Jesus, as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so we're talking again about the commandments of Jesus, the separate commandments, the new lawgiver, the commandments that Jesus gave to his church, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Paul said, now I've given you the commandments that the Lord gave me to give you. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now those words, by the authority of, were added by the NASB translators. If you read it in the original Greek, it's still just the commandments that we gave you from the Lord Jesus Christ. So it means the same basic thing. For this is the will of God. Oh, good. This is helpful. Now we're going to know what the will of God is. I have people write to me on a fairly regular basis and say, how do I know what the will of God is for my life? Okay, well, this is one of those verses that answers it. This is the will of God. His will is your sanctification. Okay, so that word sanctification, hagiosmos in the Greek, has that same root, hagios. The word hagios is the word holy. Be holy because I am holy. Your sanctification is your hagiosmos, part of that separating yourself from the world, being different than the world, being different than the way you used to be when you chased after your flesh and every sinful desire. God wills, God's desire for you is that you separate, that you not be like the world. That is your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, oh good, he's going to help us understand it even more clearly. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Uh, that's an interesting translation your own vessel, it means your own body. So that you, as you walk out this Christian life, 
learn how to control your own body because your own body of flesh is going to constantly be feeding you fleshly desires. The things that you want, the things that you crave, and flesh is a really tough task master. Any of you been hungry lately? If you've even been slightly peckish lately, I guarantee you the first thing you did was run to the refrigerator or drive to a drive-thru or stop somewhere and get food. When was the last time you were hungry, really hungry, and chose to just deny yourself and ignore that hunger? That's hard to do. It's difficult. Why? Because flesh has its desires and its cravings, and it knows how to make you uncomfortable if you don't give it what it wants. You're controlled by your flesh. You're controlled by this fleshly body, the vessel that you live in. So part of the Christian walk is learning how to possess, how to control your own vessel. And the most obvious demonstration of your flesh being out of control is sexual immorality, which is why he started right out with abstain from sexual immorality. Because your flesh wants, your flesh desires, your flesh craves fleshly things. And sometimes you think that just because you crave it, just because you desire it, that's the good reason why you ought to have it. Why do you want it? Because I want it. Every little kid knows that feeling. Why'd you do that? I don't know. I wanted to. Oh, I want this. I want this. You don't want that. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I want that. I want that. I want that. And then you get it for them, and it goes in their bedroom, and they never touch it again because they only wanted it for that instant that they wanted it. And so what do we do as good parents and adults? We teach them how to control their wants, usually by saying no to them. It's good in the instruction of children to occasionally say no to them so that they learn that they don't die when they don't get what they want. Well, the same thing when God, our Father, is dealing with us. Sometimes he has to teach us how to live without the things that we crave and that we desire. And that is all part of what Paul refers to as our sanctification, our separation from our flesh, from what we used to be before the Holy Spirit took up residence in us, and separate from the world, separate from the desires of the world, which is why the world is able to look at us and see that we are a peculiar, different people. And then they're going to ask things like, what is that hope that's in you? Then we're going to be able to tell them a reason for the hope that is within us. Because they can see in us that we are genuinely different. So Paul says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So then he's laid out a contrast. Live like people who do know God. If you claim to know God, if you claim to be in Jesus Christ, 
then you walk like it, then you act like it, then you behave like it, like people who know God. Don't behave like the people who don't know God. There are people who don't know God, who are acting any way they want, who are walking according to the lusts of their own desires and their own flesh, and according to the prince of the power of the air, the devil who is the ruler of this world. They're walking according to the dark forces that are ruling over this planet. And God says, don't be like that. I'm holy. I'm different. I'm separate. Be like me. Not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress or defraud his brother in any manner, because the Lord is the avenger in all things. In other words, if you are trying to take vengeance, if you are trying to even the score, if you feel that you've been wronged and you're going to take it upon yourself to set it right again, Paul argues it's better to be defrauded because God, who is the ultimate avenger, is going to see to it that things are infinitely made right. And you can't make anything eternally right. He is going to make everything eternally just. And so, therefore, don't live by your lustful passions and don't transgress and don't defraud your brother in any matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, which is transgression, which is sinfulness, which is rebellion against the holiness of God. God didn't call you for that. He called you for the purpose of sanctification, holiness, separation. So no matter where we look in the Bible, Old or New Testament, we find the same directive, which is belief in God and Christianity is much more than simply giving a head nod, a mental assent, to theological propositions. And I love theological propositions. But theological propositions that teach you about God, but then don't also instruct you in how to behave for that God, or toward that God, or because of the nature of that God, is a theological proposition that might have tickled your brain, but did you no good in living out your Christian profession? I just used the phrase, tickle your brain. (laughs) All of that is not just introduction, but none of it is in my notes. It's what I was awake all night over. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Now can I go to sleep? (laughs) Now we're finally to the part of my notes that I was intending to get to this morning. Turn to Ephesians 2.10. Last week we finished by looking at Titus 2.11. You don't have to turn there. We read 11 to 14. And the last of that phrase was that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us 
from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Part of genuine Christianity, part of the behavior of Christianity, is that we are zealous for good works. We want good works. And I took the time last week, and I'm going to say it again, far from being legalistic, genuine legalism would say you have to do good works in order to be saved. God will react to your good works by saving you. The idea that you could inspire sinful, depraved people to do good works in order for God to approve of them and save them. That's what legalism actually is. But the message of grace includes salvation by grace, salvation by the finished work of Christ, salvation as a result of God choosing you before the foundation of the world, salvation as a result of God's good pleasure, God's demonstration of himself in his grace to undeserving creatures. That is all part and parcel of it, and that's all true. But the rest of it is also that the people who have been conformed by the grace of God are people who are zealous for good works. So the good works are a result of having been saved. They are not the cause for why you are saved. Mm -hmm. Get the difference? Yes. If you get the cart before the horse and you say, good works get you saved, then you're teaching legalism and you're not teaching the Bible aright. But if you say, salvation is wholly and completely, utterly, totally by grace as a result of God's choosing and election and determining things before the foundation of the world, but now, having been redeemed and called and saved and justified, having been sanctified by the finished work of Christ and glorified in the mind of God, now act like it. Now go out and do the good works and be zealous for them. Does that make sense? Yes. Once you get that stuff all in order, it falls in place right away. It would be easy at this moment to talk indicative imperative stuff. For those of you who don't know what that means, for the ones who do know what it means, talk amongst yourselves. But for the ones who don't know what that means, indicative means who you are. Imperative means what you do. And all the world's religions except Christianity get that relationship backwards. And they say, if you want to be this, whatever that is, if you want to reach nirvana, if you want to, if you're looking for those 70 virgins, whatever it is that is your ultimate goal so that you can be this, first you have to do this. You have to go kill some infidels. You got to go meditate your way into the nirvana. You have to do the stuff. And if you do it, then you can be this. Christianity never does that. Paul's writing never does that. He always puts the indicative who you are, before the imperative, what you do. You do good things, but you do the good things as a result of the fact that you are a Christian, that you are redeemed of God, that you have been chosen and elected since before the foundation of the world, that God himself has been kind and gracious to you. That is who you are. 
You are the redeemed in Christ. Christ is in you and you are in Christ. You are seated in heavenly places. You are glorified in the mind of God. That is who you are. Now do this. And that's the way that the Bible always speaks. It always says, since you are redeemed, act like it. So Ephesians 2, along the same line as Titus, says very much the same thing because it's the same author. It's still Paul doing the writing. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship. Okay, that's who we are. That's the indicative. We are his workmanship. We are his creation. He not only made us, he not only formed us in the womb, but he is also reforming us, remaking us until we are fully conformed to the image of his son. That is what God has predestined us for, according to Paul in the book of Romans. He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And so, therefore, it is God who is doing all of the work on us from our creation to what we ultimately become. It is all through the power and sustaining might of God and the fact that we know him, that we are called by him, that we are guided toward him is all the result of his work in us and through us. Therefore, we are his workmanship. You get it? Yes. And how were we created? Created in Christ Jesus. Jesus in us. Us in Jesus. We're one with our Savior. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Paul just stuck the good works in there again. Paul just added the behavior element again. It's not enough. It would be great if we could say, we are his workmanship, he does it, he does it all, there's no obligation on us. It's just him. We still get to live like hell. But he does all the work of saving us. He, he's our Lord and Savior. We're not responsible. But that's not what the Bible ever says it says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So you don't get any credit for your good works. Remember a minute ago I said the wrong way to understand your relationship to good works and salvation is to say that your good works is the cause of your salvation. But you are saved. You were saved by the determination of God. And you were saved for the purpose of doing good works. And even those good works were determined by God so that you would walk in those good works because he is so determined that you, belonging to him, would do good. And so he creates not only the desire that you do good works, but the opportunities. He creates the opportunities for you to do the good works that he has prepared for you beforehand. Because he's, what's that word? Sovereign. Because he's absolutely in control and you get credit for none of it. But right in the middle of all that sovereignty, there's your behavior. And your behavior is toward good works. So whether it is Jesus who is purifying for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works 
or whether it's us admitting that we are his workmanship and we were created in Jesus Christ for good works, it's still unavoidable that Paul believes that Christianity results in different behavior, separate behavior, sanctified behavior, purified behavior, not like the world of unbelievers. Long as you're in the book of Ephesians, go to chapter 4. I know that I have said to you, and it is still true, that the next book that we are going to review in the Bible verse by verse is that we're going to go through Ephesians again, but I have decided to take a little bit of a different approach to it because the book of Ephesians was written at the same time that Paul wrote the book of Colossians, and in fact, in the book of Colossians, he seems to make reference to the letter that he has written to the Ephesians, and so I think the way we're going to approach the book of Ephesians next is Ephesians and Colossians, like a side-by-side comparison of those two books, then it will be at least slightly different than the first time that we went through it, although huge portions of it are going to have to be the same thing because it turns out it still says the same thing as it said last time we went through it. But nevertheless, we're going to read a big chunk of Ephesians 4 now, even though we are headed for Ephesians eventually. Ephesians 4, we're going to start reading at verse 17. And we're going to read all the way to verse 32, I do believe. So this I say, and I affirm together with the Lord. In other words, the Lord said it. These are the Lord's dictates. I'm simply affirming it together with him. That you walk. Are we okay with that word walk now? Do we understand that the word walk means how you conduct yourself, how you conduct your life? how you demonstrate yourself out there in the world. That you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Remember a moment ago we read that you were not supposed to behave yourself the way the unbelieving Gentiles do. Okay, that's Pauline language for unbelievers. When he says this is how the Gentiles walk, he means the unbelievers, the way that they behave themselves. That you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That's quite a list. (laughs) He says that's what the world is like. The unbelieving world, the unbelieving Gentiles, that's what they're like. They've become callous to the things of God. They don't care about the things of righteousness or holiness, and therefore they've become hardened in their hearts. And that's the reason that they give themselves over to sensuality, fleshliness. Every desire, every craving that they have rules over them. And they practice every kind of impurity with greediness. They are greedy for their own impurity. They sin and they love their sin. But notice that Paul began by saying, I affirm together with the Lord That because you're saved by Christ, you're not supposed to be like that. 
That's what they're like. They're like that. Don't be like that. Verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. In other words, everything he just described. He just described what worldly, unbelieving Gentiles look like. They're full of ignorance, and their minds are futile, and they're darkened in their understanding. And yet they're still out there living lives. They're still walking around on the planet doing whatever it is that they want to do. But you who are in Christ, that's not how you've learned Christ. If you have learned Christ at all, you're not supposed to be like that. So he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, if you are genuinely a Christian, if you genuinely have Christ inside you, you will not act like them and if you are acting like them, Paul then questions whether you have actually heard Christ or have actually been taught by Christ. Because if you have actually heard his word and have actually been instructed and taught by his word, then you won't any longer be like that. So the proof positive that you are in Christ and Christ is in you is that he has affected you. That there is a change in you where you go to sacrificially loving the brethren and not acting the way the fleshly, sinful, darkened, depraved world acts. Listen to Paul say it again. You did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is. In Jesus, Because the truth is in Jesus, if you've learned about Jesus, if you've been saved by Jesus, then you are also going to know the truth when you hear it. You're going to hear the truth in the word of Jesus, in the word of God, in the Bible. That's where you're going to hear that truth, and you're going to recognize it as the truth, and therefore you are not going to walk like the depraved world, because that is not the way that Christ nor God ever acted because they are holy, therefore you be holy. Verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, in other words, what you used to be like, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. So there is this new man that Paul talks about. This newly inhabited person, inhabited by the spirit of holiness. That is what it means to be born again. When you were born once, that was the old man. But your single birth is not good enough to get you all the way to heaven. You also need a new birth. Jesus said you need to be born again. Once you are born again, that is the new man. And the new man is not to be like the old man. The old man was full of his own flesh and his own desires and his own craven wants. And that was the old man. But he died. 
and you put on the new man, and then you walk according to the new man who has been created by God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Be holy, because I'm holy. Verse 25, therefore, this is what that would look like. If you were to put on the new man, it would look like this. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger, which means resolve issues. If the sun goes down and you're still angry about something, you need to go back and get that thing resolved. So that you are not spending your life in anger and deceit and judgmentalism and the determination to take vengeance on other people. You need to be living at peace with your brethren. So don't let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Tell you something about the devil. This is actually a DJ Ward phrase, but I like it. He used to say, the devil, he's a wily so-and-so. Wily. That's how he's described all the way back in the book of Genesis when he appears in the garden. He was more subtle than the other creatures. He's just waiting for an opportunity, just waiting to get in there and mess with you. Just waiting for that opening that he can get in there, tempt you, cause you all kinds of trouble in your life. And by bringing that trouble into your life, he's hoping that you'll say, where's God in all this? He's just looking. He's just waiting. And he's been alive a lot longer than you have. So his tricks are really good. So you have to protect yourself against the fiery darts of the evil one. You have to protect yourself by putting on the whole armor of God. You have to protect yourself by making sure that you are living in such a way that you are not giving place to the devil or giving him an opportunity. Don't even give him the chance to take advantage of your anger, let's say. Since it's in the context of anger here, and letting the sun go down on your anger, if you really ever let go of your anger, you can do permanent damage to people that were supposed to be your brethren who you've been commanded by Jesus to love. You can do a lot of damage with your tongue, and you can do a lot of damage with your anger, and Satan would love to get in there and stir that up. Mm -hmm. Don't give place to him. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer. In other words, don't be what you used to be. But rather, he must work. He has to labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who's in need. There's the good work. The good work is sharing with the person who is in need. If you're stealing, you're stealing out of your own cravenly lust. But what you ought to do as a Christian is go to work, be productive, and then your own hands are going to produce good things, and you can share those good things with people who have need, thereby accomplishing the very thing God is doing in working through you and making you zealous for good works. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word 
proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Anybody here lately used any unwholesome language? I almost did just the other day. I was at Food Lion arguing with a cashier about the price of a cucumber. That's how stupid it was. <laughs> it was two cucumbers. It was six cents a cucumber. We were arguing over. It was 12 whole cents. It wouldn't change my life at all. And I was so frustrated that he got it wrong and he argued with me about it. Then it became a matter of principle. The cucumber principle. And I was all ready to give him a mouthful of my opinion. And I caught myself and said, I'm a public pastor. And I'm about to unload on this poor 18-year-old who doesn't know the proper price of a cucumber. I ought to just give him the 12 cents just to keep my reputation intact because my reputation is worth more to me than 12 cents. In other words, don't be angry. Don't be like the rest of the world. Don't let unwholesome words proceed out of your mouth. Instead, make sure that the words that come out of your mouth are full of grace, that they are edifying to the person that hears it. They are appropriate for the moment that you're in and that they bring grace to the people who hear it. That's the way you ought to talk. If you're talking, if you're moving your lips, if you're exercising your tongue, make sure that you're saying things that are edifying people, lifting people up, encouraging people, and that you're not using your mouth to break people down, especially over cucumbers. <laughs> Verse 30, it's in that context that we find this very well-known phrase, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There's the battle I was talking about. There's you and your flesh and your desire to give people a good dose of you and your willingness to say, you wronged me, therefore you deserve to be wronged by me and I need to get my vengeance. I'm going to let you know. But then you've got the Holy Spirit of God in you. Emphasis again, holy, the holy spirit of a holy God living inside you. And the conflict ensues between your flesh and the spirit, which are at enmity with each other. Paul says, be conformed in your mind, be conformed in your thinking. Take sides with the Holy Spirit against yourself. And make sure that the way you conduct yourself and the way you talk and the way you behave and the way that you conduct yourself in this world is not according to your flesh, but according to the spirit of God that resides inside you. Keep your Christian witness pure. Keep your witness correct and right because you never, ever know who's looking on. I could argue with that boy about cucumbers. I can still be there at this moment. I have the ability, I have the capability to stand there and argue with him about cucumbers. And then someday he might walk through the doors and he's going to walk in and he's going to see me behind the pulpit. And he's going to turn around and walk out. Yeah. 
You never know who's watching, you never know who's looking, and you never know what kind of influence you're having on people. And when the world gets really bad, when the world gets really crazy, when the world gets really sick, sort of like, you know, now, when the world just seems to be completely off its axis, if we walk through our lives with confidence and peace, and we say good and wholesome things, uplifting things to people, eventually people are going to come to us and say, what is that about you? Why do you have that peace? The peace that Paul says passes understanding. They're not going to understand it. They're going to come to you and say, where do you get that confidence, that hope, that peace? And that is going to open the door, that opportunity for you to tell them about Christ exactly the way that God intended it when he designed it in the first place. So conduct yourself according to the spirit that resides inside you. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God is grieved when you side with your flesh. I like the fact that Paul did not say, then the Holy Spirit will leave you. I'm really glad it doesn't say that. Instead, what it says is, the battle ensues. The battle between the spirit and the flesh continues. Take sides with the Holy Spirit of God against yourself and against your flesh. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom that Holy Spirit you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's why I'm so glad he doesn't leave. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not abandon us. God does not leave us in our sin as we're being rebellious. Instead, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, up there arguing our case for us. But we'll get to that probably next week. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. You know what that word malice means? Deep hatred against other people. It is the exact polar opposite of sacrificial love. So sacrificially love one another, love the brethren, and put away the natural sinful proclivity that you have to hate people. Instead, verse 32, be kind to one another, be tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. There's your inspiration for why you're going to be that way, because Christ has forgiven you when you were in your mad, craven rebellion. He forgave you. Therefore, what could somebody else do to you where you feel justified in giving them a good dose of your wrath and your anger. Christ was not wrathful and angry to you. He was sacrificial to you. Therefore, you be sacrificial to people. You be sacrificial to your brethren. But look at verse 32 one more time. Look at the very first word of verse 32. What's that word? Be like this. Be holy, for I am holy. That is why we're talking about be the Christian. Okay, so it might take four weeks. 
<laughs> I'm on page three of my notes. I have 12 pages. But we're going to leave that right there for the moment. I hope that adequately answered the question of why I am emphasizing be the Christian. Be holy because I'm holy. And then they even describe what it is to be like that. And it's all behavior based. But it is all inspired by the holiness of the Holy Spirit with whom we are sealed until the day of redemption. It is all inspired by the goodness of Christ who died in our place. It is all inspired by the grace of God who chose us and loved us before the foundation of the world. Therefore, because all of that is true, therefore you walk as though it is true for you. Make sense? Yes, sir. Questions? No? No questions? Well, then turn in your hymnal to 125.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.